Welcome to One Two Hundred, the Independent Politics and Media Podcast. I'm joined in the co-host seats this morning uh, by Justine and Philip. Welcome to the cast, folks. Yoda. Yoda. All right. It's been it's been a um, standard New Zealand politics week, really. People have yelled about things, um, and not much has happened. There's a lot of discourse that is beginning to foment, uh, but. Yeah, Justine, you were just saying before we started, there's a very special day coming up tomorrow. Yeah, I'm not sure when this uh, podcast will be released, but we're recording this on It is being released tomorrow. Is it? Oh, okay. Well, when you hear this podcast, it'll be International Workers' Day, which is on the 1st of May. So um, celebrate it by joining a union um, or just being, you know, a good... uh, potty person comrade <laughs> there's a screening of reds at academy cinema where you get a discount if you're a union member so I'll, I'll yeah promo that even though it'll be too late by the time you listen to this probably but yeah um reds is um a movie based on the book um oh, day, 10 days that shook the world by john reed um which is a first-hand account of the russian revolution and um so what better way to spend international workers day than recounting um a day of immense hope for humanity, don't you think? Whatever you might think of what happened later along, along the line with the Soviet Union, that day in and of itself, I think, was a pretty cool day. The workers rose up. They stormed the Winter Palace. You know, that's it's kind of fab, if I, if I do say so myself. Right. <laughs> Anyways, look, stop me from going on now. Anyways, it's International Workers' Day tomorrow, so, you know, crack open a beer and um, toast to the working class. That's uh, my recommendation. It's a good day. Yeah, cheers. We, we should celebrate more, eh? I feel, it sometimes feels pretty drab on the kind of workers' rights end of things, so it's nice to stop for a moment and smell the bread and roses. Well, we call it May Day, and, I mean, there used to be, like, choirs and parties and stuff, and I think we need to get back to that, you know? Um, have right. a good time. Party at Justine's. In the name of socialism, yeah. Yeah, party totally. at Justine's. Show totally. Up. You don't need to um, warm, warm her ahead of time. No, don't. Why would you? She's got plenty of flat packs for everyone. <laughs> Any potential stalkers listening to this are like, okay, cool, cool. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Finally my chance. <laughs> so the the week gone, we've seen a, a bit of a significant uptick in coverage uh, and, and discussion um, in the political class, uh, moving back towards a, a law and order framework. Um, I know there's been a... You know, there, there are commercial reasons for that as well, uh, not just political ones. Uh, there's been a lot of very sensational footage uh, that makes for, for good, uh, good news and, and draws in uh, the clicks in the eyes. But it hasn't really been sitting with me particularly well. Uh, and, and credit to some media organisations who have had... Uh, like youth workers and, and the like on to talk about the systemic issues uh, that, so some of these um, these people taking part uh, in, in ram raids or um, uh, thefts in shopping malls are, are quite young children. What are, what are your thoughts about the way that coverage has shifted uh, over the last week or so, Philip? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd go further than saying some, like from what the, from what the cops have been saying, it sounds like the majority, it's, it's kind of a youth crime, um, issue spe- specifically. It doesn't seem like a whole lot of, um, hardened 
30 plus year olds are the ones driving uh, cars into shop fronts. Um, yeah, there was, a, there was a cop saying vast majority of people involved in the Ram, Ram raids are teenagers. Um, yeah, so in terms of coverage, you're right, definitely the if it bleeds, it leads thing is still true. Like um, News Hub in particular is always going to do that and the Herald's always going to do that. They don't care. They'll, you know, they'll ask a cop and a law and order spokesperson uh, first before they go to anyone else. But I've been more impressed over the, the course of the week at who they've been getting on. So people from youth organizations of kind of varying levels of um, respectability, I would say, or like responsibility, um, people from Oranga Tamariki and who actually have some like experience in the youth sector is pretty cool um, so that you can get a bit more context around it. So, I mean, the fact that it took a little while before they had people on who actually knew about trends in youth crime is the standard kind of like one size fits all crime reporting that we always see. But then now that we have that, we, we can put it in context. And like Oranga Tamariki said, youth crime has fallen 60% in the last 10 years. So, I mean, putting these specific like bumps in particular crimes, which always happen, like crimes come in cycles, right? One person sees something on Facebook and goes, I could smash my car into a dairy and steal a couple hundred bucks worth of smokes. Like that's something I can see myself doing. Um, it'll, it'll come and go like all these kind of crime fads that uh, youth crime goes through. And yeah, within that context, like I think we need to not be talking about new like huge systemic solutions to such a particularist kind of issue right yeah I, I think that's a good um point Philip so um thank you know thanks for pointing that out I think like yeah like I was going to say the same thing it, it seems to me that crime is continuing you know like the the trend is downward and so we shouldn't get like you know buy into any kind of narrative that tries to say that there's some sort of like huge uptick in crime um you know, there were some really sad stories, like children as young as seven years old involved in a ram raid to get to a toy store. I mean, you know, this isn't, honestly, this isn't really the purview of the police. I mean, I don't think many things are the purview of the police, to be honest, but especially this particularly. Um, and, you know, I, I will say, I just want to bring this back to being like, um, to make this about urban planning. Um, if we didn't have enormous cars that were capable of ram raiding places, we wouldn't have this issue. And maybe if we had bollards, we wouldn't have this issue. I mean, this. Uh, uh, I think. I, I, I think. Scene is in the chat. I think, I think we should bring. Away. I think we should bring this back to planning. I mean, what on earth? Like, why is a child able to take control of an enormous, monstrous-like machine and ram it into a shop front? I mean, this is a failure of council. So it's let's we, let's six-year-olds in a trench coat, Justine. There's no yeah. way to outside the car. They used to have to. to chop down a, a large tree and make a battering ram. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Like, look, excuse look me. Yeah, but no, excuse me. Is. Like, because they have, because you can steal an enormous Ford, like a Ford the size of, like, um, like Fiji and ram it into, I don't know why I picked Fiji, um, ram it into a storefront. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's the car that's the issue. Let's bring it back to the, the real issues, the cars <laughs> that I hate. That is a, that is a take. We that's, a, that's a heavy pivot. See, okay. see, no one, no one hears my perspective on things. <laughs> we don't hear about the, you. We don't hear the anti-car agenda when we talk about you, this youth crime wave. I mean, I know, but I did keep coming back to it though. These like ram raids. I mean, like, um, 
you know, I, I do, I do think to an extent, it's like, how do we get, how do people get the tools to do these things? And it, it, it does seem a bit ridiculous to me. And um, so, and someone did point out that there were bollards um, at one place that actually prevented the thing from taking place. So a lot of this could be down to the fact that we need to pedestrianize our cities. And um, yeah, so, so I'm not saying not sort of not, not blaming, okay, I'm not blaming car based infrastructure on these events, but I kind of am as well. Much as you'd like to, yeah. Much as I'd like to. Maybe there are other issues at play. Like it there was, are other issues at play. It was, it was nice to hear the cops um, being interviewed, like literally saying that, saying this isn't really an issue for police. Like, um, who was it? There was an inspector from Manukau, I think, who was saying um, when you're like, we have the, re the resources we need, which was interesting after, you know, they spoke to Nicola Willis and David Parker about it. And the, the Nicola Willis thing was trying to do the liberal net thing of like extra resources for police, but also make sure that the parents are getting the quote unquote help they need, right? Um, which is personal responsibility with like a soft outer exterior. Um, but and then David Parker's like, oh, uh, maybe it's, people are saying it's about social media. I don't really believe that. He had well, doesn't believe that. Of course, well, I mean, you got to bring it up, but then also say it's not about that. How labor is, how labor is that <laughs> narrative building, right? Um, but then Parker also said, uh, research showed teaching children restraint and delayed gratification can help them not do crimes. The that's, that's pure moral panic shit. Oh, totally. It's a failure. You know, like that's, I mean, that's disgusting. Yeah, that's basically saying it. it's a failure of parenting. Um, yeah. But also, I mean, who's like, it's one of those very neoliberal atomizing things. It's like, who's going to teach these kids? They're saying like, none of these kids are in school, according to the cops. They were saying like 80% of them uh, oh, not the cops. Oh, hold on, somebody keeps saying 80% of the kids are from homes where they experience violence at home and almost all of them are not in schools. So who's David Parker passing this responsibility to be teaching um, responsibility to, right? Nobody. That's the like, he's painting yeah. no solutions. Um, the whole thing's just um, upsetting because I mean, I do think like this behavior is literally because we've allowed such extreme levels of deprivation to um you know and people to really really suffer i mean we've we're literally turning a blind eye to huge levels of of suffering in our and in, in you know working class low-income communities um so uh, and now we're upset about the concept like that spilling over and kind of impacting us in any small way um you know that's also seen in like the reaction to um the you know unhoused people homeless people in on queen street in town you know people people get mad um, when the problem, uh, when they have to see the problem or be impacted by the issue in any single way. It's like, you know, um, I'm sorry, but um, I'm sort of, in, in a way, I'm glad that you are uncomfortable right now on Queen Street. I'm glad that I'm uncomfortable on Queen Street because, because this isn't, you can't hide this, you know, like these are people and they deserve and they deserve they deserve human dignity they deserve to be housed they deserve everything and we're failing and we should be made to confront that so um yeah. that's just my opinion yeah that's i think what you were saying earlier philip about you know we we don't necessarily need to talk about big systemic fixes for this specific issue but the underlying thing to that is that there are very the same big systemic fixes needed which have always been needed uh and this is a another outcome yeah. of the uh, fact that those haven't been made if you if you want to like the only thing you need to know about any of this stuff is that the housing crisis and the cost of living crisis is um 
just destroying lives and um and pushing people into extreme poverty and deprivation and um you know amplifying other issues like family violence and all sorts of things like an addiction and mental health issues and so you know sick like uh it is like a bread and butter issue in a way like it's more specific than that but it also is like this is the housing crisis this is the cost of living crisis and let's not make any like mistake about that you know Exactly, exactly. That's bang on. It's a spectacular symptom of a broken system, right? It's not its own issue. Like the reason that RAM raids make good news is because you can see them, you go, oh, wow, one big flashy kind of bad looking thing. Um, and it's also got an obvious bad guy that you can go, that person who drove the car shouldn't have done that. I know how to drive a car. Being on the road is one of the main things I know about that. So like that internalization of individual blame is so easy, but you're right. It's that like, it's things that you notice that make you go, oh, well, if this is becoming a thing, why is that? And then within the, the stat of youth crime decreasing overall, it's like, of course, the parts that where that behavior will become egregious and continue will be the most deprived. Like all of those indexes, the more, the more stressed, the more poor you are, the worse the risks of all those things happening. So like, if you actually wanted to solve those issues, you wouldn't be talking about um, ram raids. You'd be talking about support and youth organizations and stuff, which the police actually are like to their credit. Yeah, have been speaking have been like, we can't really do anything about this. I don't know. Which why is really good. I mean, if you've ever had the police come to a mental health call out, which unfortunately I've, you know, n- not me, but for someone, um, you'd know how useless the police are in any kind of situation where you actually need um, a mental health professional or a family violence professional or, or, or someone who knows a little bit about these issues, which the police don't, because I'm sorry, but, you know, they're not trained to do that. It's not their job. Like it's it's insane to do that. And they it's said not the cream recently. of the crop. Also, you know, yeah, and they, just being honest. No, hundred percent. And they they said that recently about um, homeless people in Auckland Central as well, right? When the uh, in kind of the recent kind of build up in the local body election, the different mayoral candidates were talking about homelessness in Auckland Central, um, and they talked to the police, and the police were like, "Well, this isn't really a police issue. Like this is a." As a, a system issue that has allowed this to happen. I don't know, like, what do you want us to do? It's you an know, interesting you... set of um, circumstances because I don't think we've really seen the narrative take form in this way, at least since I've been involved in politics, which is, like, longer than I want to think about. But, you know, we've had the media um, doing quite a bit better than I, I'd say they usually do uh, with referring back to uh you know non-police organizations not running law and order lines um you've had the police themselves saying no don't give us funding for this like this is basically unheard of but at the same time alongside that this recent uh spate of news comes on the back of a national party campaign uh in the house um and in media to put as much pressure on as possible on Porter Williams, uh, the Minister of Police. And for whatever reason, both the major political parties are still completely stuck in that frame. So mm. while the media is bringing in Oranga Tamariki and, and youth workers and the police are saying, please stop looking to us to solve these problems, both Labour and National spokespeople are still trying to talk about this as a as a crime issue and try and do the tough on crime thing and the individual responsibility thing to a to an extent and part of that means that no one is really drawing it back to the underlying issues you know we we have got um people talking about youth mental health but we're not talking so much about what we have 
just now uh, regarding just poverty and deprivation um, and the range of issues. There's, there's a huge opportunity for, for a political party to, to get in there and, and totally shift this narrative at the moment, and it feels like no one's grasping it. You know, I think the media and the police um, and, the, and the fact that there has been a level of nuance in, in that coverage and, and also what the police are saying is a credit to the work of, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement the um, and um, prison abolitionist movements like Papa and Just Speak. I really do think um, they've done an amazing job of kind of um, drawing attention to the fact that more police isn't going to solve these issues. So, you know, I think that's like in the public consciousness um, in a way that it just wasn't um, for even five years ago. Um, but the parties are stuck in the mud, really. They're stuck tw 20 years back for a good reason. It's because this conversation does require structural, like, change. You know, you can't talk about these, like, how the police um, aren't going to be able to solve big systemic issues like a mental health crisis or poverty and things like that um, without really getting to the crux of, like, oh, no, we've got big issues that neither party are willing to really address. That's key, so, right? That doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me. Um, but I, you know, and, and, and so, and, and I do, and I think we do need to always be worried about, you know, what um, law and order populism, or I mean, they, I think they call it penal populism. And um, yeah, like we have to really always be worried about it because, you know, basically it is like, it's basically victim, like it is victim blaming. It's like, oh, um, nah, it's not the system that's an issue. It's the victims of the system who are annoying me because they're anti as antisocial behavior. It's like, where does that antisocial behavior come from? Um, and so, like, I think always being on guard for that is really important. And I definitely see, like, national, especially, but also Labor, yeah, trying to push that on the agenda. Um, I mean, you know, like, Labor continually, like, brags about, oh, we, we put this many cops back on the street. Uh, uh, national wants to take away a thousand cops. And um, it's terrible. It's like, okay. <laughs> Just like, whatever. Yeah. Um, but um, no, it's, it is good that the cops, like, you know, I think, I think we've got some, I think like, I mean, I know for a fact, um, like that, that, you know, within like at least the leadership and especially in the Auckland police is that, that they don't want to respond to mental health calls. Cause I think it's also distressing for them because they don't know what they're doing. Um, they're not equipped to deal with it, you know? Yeah, it's, um, not, it's not about whether the cops are good or bad, right? They're just the wrong, like, they're bad, but, they're bad um, for different reasons, but yeah. they're, they're the wrong tools for this job, even within the, like, the conception of the police as an institution. Like, they know they're the wrong tool for the job. If you keep, like, if you keep dispatching a plumber to fix your roof, eventually he's going to be like, stop calling me to fix your roof. This is not something I'm equipped to do. Like, it makes my stats look bad because I've fixed zero roofs in the last 10 years, you know? It's just, like, on a very basic level, it's a mistake of um attributing the problem uh and it's it's great that they seem to have started to recognize that because like the the fact that you know the first thing the national police police spokesperson nicola willis says despite the fact that she's from the much vaunted kind of quote-unquote liberal wing of the party that's nice and soft and has uh on a completely unrelated note has a lot of uh, coffees with journalists um the fact the first thing she says is do the police need funding to have a police helicopter in the air more like, why is that the first place you go if the police are saying, like, this is not how you'll stem, like, we're not going to system this problem, right? 
you're very ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Stuff. To be honest, though, yeah. Philip, if you if you had another police helicopter that could find more um, cannabis plants, then all of this would stop overnight. <laughs> just um, just snipe people as they're going for a ram raid, eh? Like, what are you? What the fuck are you gonna do with a, a helicopter in the air to stop any of these issues which are hitting the news? You idiots! Hey, um, funny you should bring up uh, a plumber though, Philip because I, I, I'm disgusted at myself for, <laughs> for this reach. Uh, but the other major issue we want to talk about was uh, three, three Waters, um, because that's also been hitting the news as well uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, Philip, you were, just, you were just saying before that it's important to differentiate between the, the two major issues uh, with this policy. Can you uh, take our audience through that? Yeah, totally. Um, so just to bring everyone who hasn't been paying any attention to Three Waters up to speed, uh, kind of the concept of the Three Waters is uh, drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater. So these three types of water that we need to treat separately, but also with similar infrastructure um, that local government's been responsible for. Uh, responsible, I guess, in its loosest possible interpretation of the word. Um, and at the moment, we have 67 council-owned authorities responsible for managing them around the country. And kind of the concept of this is to merge control of those 67 into four entities. Um, and last year, Labour brought up this proposal they called Three Waters that was basically uh, having kind of appointed, quote-unquote, independent bureaucrats uh, running these four entities around the country. And there was a huge amount of pushback from people kind of across the board, local government people, um, old anti-neoliberalism anti campaigners, uh, right-wing people, reactionary people, racists, because there was already a mention that they wanted iwi uh, and tapu to have some kind of uh, responsibility on these boards um, for their land. Um, so they went away and did a working group, as Labour loves to do, and that's finally reported back. Uh, and they had 47... Uh, recommendations and Labour has uh, accepted 44 of them and say they're working on the last three. So basically the entire suite of changes that this working group uh, put forward, they've accepted. That's unheard of from Labour. I know. That's what's interesting about it, I think. Um, and it's very the Mahuta energy, like shepherding something quite complex through a structure and then coming out the end with something that is that will work because there's a reason that probably the people on that uh, working group were the people that they were and the process that they went through went through the process that they did right um as opposed to the uh we egg right where they just went no we can't give people money that's that's too hard uh been that who cares about those people um yeah so kind of the context around all of this um centralization of water control is this increase that we've seen more and more hitting the media but it's kind of been happening for quite a while yeah like decades types have been degrading um, there have been like boil water notices with like, oh by the asbestos, way asbestos asbestos in the water yeah everything in the water runoff from construction has obviously been increasing in the last few years all, all around the country um, and it turns out water is quite an important thing for humans is something we seem to have realised uh, and having clean clean water to drink is particularly quite important and carrying away wastewater safely uh, is its own kind of health issue that we've seen in the in the age of COVID uh, it turns out bad health is bad anyway. Uh, so Stuart Crosby, the president of Local Government New Zealand, um, said everyone in local government sector 
thinks the status quo is unsustainable. So that's kind of the base level. Like the way we're managing water at the moment is 67 independent council organizations who all independently have incentives to keep rates down. And what the rates fund, their major asset is mostly water infrastructure. So the more they can degrade water infrastructure over the short term, the more voted in these little councils feel like they're going to get, right? Whether that's true or not, that's the way they've kind of developed in the neoliberal local government era. So that's the cycle we've uh, developed. So kind of the idea is a balance sheet separation between council and water bodies. So the, I guess the, the middle point that they've come to with these recommendations is these four entities are going to exist, but those four entities are going to be appointed by representation groups. And the representation groups are going to be split between uh, the local governments in the area, divided by the number of people, blah, blah, blah. So Auckland Council will have by far the biggest voice on the Northern Authority, which is kind of from just south of Auckland up to the um, up to Cape. So it's kind of trying to do a bit of representation on the people who are appointed to the body rather than on the body itself. So it's trying to take, it's trying to create that separation. Um, and then the other half of that is going to be some form of Tao Māori representation. So that's the that's what's been conflated, I think, is this um, this quote unquote co-governance idea that is being you know wildly misinterpreted by people all across the spectrum. Um, and being conflated with three waters when really it's a relatively minor aspect of how it's being instituted. The three waters itself is just a reorganization of the way that bureaucracy is going to run our water infrastructure. The idea is with kind of a longer view for planning across the years that isn't reliant on election cycles and local government, which I think we would probably all agree is a good thing. Like we need to not be relying on. And so is the head of local, the local government organization. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, like, Honestly, it's like see a, how bad the pipes yeah. knows that something has to change. But right? also, it's bankrupting councils. I mean, like this is going to be a huge boon for councils, and um, you know, it's just yeah. And I think like they've tried to make it basically, you know, the right. Um, I think the right wants to reserve the right to <laughs> to privatize water. Basically, that's really the underlying um, you know interest there because water is um, you know going like like especially with climate change like. Um, mm. An important resource that you know potentially could be privatized um but they're making it a cultural issue because they know that that's what's going to play in the i rural... think not just yeah. privatized though because remember as well that in new zealand we have this really odd uh relationship with water from a management perspective where a number of private organizations basically get free use of water um like like enormous amounts um and free use of water ways to take away effluent or, or chemicals, um, you know, it just gets poured into our rivers. And there's a whole range of that stuff that is only able to happen because some little council somewhere uh, ha like has a mate um, who owns a, a fucking factory, you know, and they've, they've just given this uh, permission for 50 years. Uh, yeah, so like, so all those loopholes would go out the window for some of these people. Yeah, yeah, theoretically. But I mean, so one of the wins that I think we should recognize from the left is that with these changes, it would make it significantly harder to privatize. Um, so at the moment, one of the benefits that kind of old school left campaigners were saying that we currently had is that councils were extremely strongly incentivized not to privatize their water systems, right? People don't want their water privatized. The concern was pass that to an independent board of uh, quote unquote experts who we've had enough of. Um, and, 
And those people might be more willing to compromise on that kind of things if they're making the financial decisions, right? So this new, this new change says that public in-service areas would need a 75% vote majority to privatize any water. Um, I've also seen the idea that 75% of parliament would have to. Um, I guess we'll see how it gets how it gets instituted. But regardless, I think that's a pretty high, pretty high bar. That's pretty good um, compared to what we've got at the moment. That's all these kind of unprivatizable cells was kind of the idea, like the network, right? It's a little bit anti-neoliberal in the way that it's structured. So you can see why there was this kind of reaction from lefties who fought in the 80s and had this kind of old school anti-neoliberal uh, mindset. Totally like that's that's a defense against privatization that we had that's being changed. So we have to figure out if whatever we have now is going to be more or less privatizable than what we had. And I think like this new change is a big, mm. a big difference. I, I also kind of um, disagree with the argument that it's undemocratic. Like I, um, you know, I think um, we centralizing it in a system where we do have proportional representation isn't necessarily undemocratic. I think it's just not localist or decentralized, which is not necessarily a bad thing when it comes to something like water. So I'm not saying like, I'm not, you know, wholesale saying like nothing should be decentralized. You know, there are things that communities should run themselves. Um, I always come back to the fact, like I think New Zealanders do need to have a perspective that we are a small country, okay? There are cities that have a single council that runs orders that are three times bigger than ours. Okay. So that's a good thing to think about. 67 entities running the water for a country of 5 million is absolutely nonsensical and it's, and it's not delivered very good results. Okay. Um, <laughs> it makes way more sense, way more sense. And this, this is the same with the health care reforms. It makes way more sense to, to have a more centralized overview of this. If we were in a bigger country, like I think they'd, like there'd be a bigger, uh, there'd be a more justified argument for, you know, um, fed, what, what do you might call it? Federalism or, um, you know, state, state kind of ism, but, you know, given the size that we are, it makes complete sense and um i think it's gonna have positive a positive impact and yeah so i really um i, I get where they're coming from but i, I think it's um I, I do think it's a bit wrong to be honest i just think it's wrong yeah. i disagree with people, that, people yeah. are allowed to be wrong and we're allowed to yeah. say that they're wrong yeah i think there's i think there are still risks um if you look at who gets involved in local government that's still i mean we have a reasonably conservative set of councillors around the country and if they're picking if they're on the representative body um, and iwi leaders as well from some in some areas if they're the ones picking uh, the people on this independent body what does expertise mean like what what kind of water infrastructure delivery are they going to respect is it going to be ex-treasury officials who need somewhere to retire is it going to be like wellington bureaucrats who are looking around the regions for a cushy job to like head out i mean look at the people who get elected to mayor in new zealand it's not exactly forward-thinking visionaries for the most part so it's it going to be uh, in auckland very oh, soon too soon, <laughs> too soon. But yeah, so I think, I think there are still risks and like we shouldn't treat this as a binary um, three waters is good because it'll make water good argument. It's very much, it's reforming the structure. It's not going to solve the problems by itself. Yeah, still don't trust labour. No, exactly. And I mean, you could bring in three waters, underfund it, and you'd have many of the same issues as you have now, just in a smaller place. Which is why I think we need to focus on the demand, which is like clean drinking water for every um, New Zealander, which is, you know, an abject failure currently. I mean, it, it really is quite shocking. It's like a fundamental thing. I think that we all probably take for granted, um, which we shouldn't because God knows, you know, like 
as I said, there might be a space. I mean, like this is true. There has been asbestos found in water all over the country. Asbestos, you know, that's not good. No, and of course, like the other thing, you know, that we don't talk about in our water is the high level of nitrates from um, dairy farms, um, which is which is what, which is probably the reason why we have the highest incidence of colon cancer in the world because that's there's a connection between that and colon cancer. So, like, we need to further regulate our water, and we need to ensure that people, yeah, not only have fluoride in their water, but that they don't have asbestos <laughs> and nitrate high levels of nitrates. So, you know, like right now, I don't know, the status quo is a complete failure. And of course, we can't forget like the terrible situation in Havelock North, where, where like people died because of like contamination of water. So, yeah. I think I think one of the like from a more macro perspective, like one of the interesting things that the Three Waters acceptance of the reforms has shown is a, a kind of wise um, disentangling of the of the forces against it. So there was this awkward alliance of right wingers, uh, reactionaries, racists, um, local government nerds, people who wanted to decentralize everything were all kind of arrayed against Three Waters for completely incompatible reasons, right? If you asked like a socialist from the 80s, uh, centre-right Nat Fota and a libertarian why they didn't want these reforms, none of their plans would be um, compatible, right? So I think Labour for once has maybe done quite a good job of taking some of those apart so they won't be able to argue against it in such a uniform voice. So now we have, we're going to have people is a prediction, it's probably going to be wrong, but we'll have people coming around to support Three Waters who opposed it last year, and we'll have people being forced to be more clear about what their opposition actually is. So at the moment, we've got people from ACT and National already saying, oh, we don't support Three Waters, but we, we already have local government people saying, well, the status quo is unsustainable, so what? What's your plan? If you actually and right-wing local government people as well are saying that. Exactly. Yeah, because they know that they're looking at their budgets. I mean, well, it's, it's not sustainable. And this like, is... We can't afford this. Are you going to pay for it or not? Like, what are, what are you going to do? Which is why we should all be sort of side-eyeing um, Mr. Paul, Phil Goff, um, who continually just is wrong all the time. On it. Who are you so talking about? Because I don't know. I haven't seen this person in maybe two or three years. Yeah, yeah. That's that's true, uh, and he loves he loves COVID and dirty water. That's what that's the what the and the the wonderful mayor of um, Auckland. So he's on the radio like oh I've I've dealt with water care and you know we're doing such a good job. It's like Auckland's probably the one place where there's actually not very much resistance to three waters because it's like you know we're not like yeah. And the future mayor of Auckland, Defensor Collins, supports three waters just uh, as an FYI. I mean, Philgoff um, is the um, the person who went to uni and got all their degrees for free, who um, then comes back and gets mad at people who aren't, who aren't able to afford their next bloody thing, right? He, he got through kind of a, a golden era and Auckland did, quote unquote, invest in its infrastructure at a time that it could afford to because there were rich people there. Um, and all these other regions are struggling way more than us with uh, their water contamination issues. Like it's going to arise more in Auckland, but looking looking to the future is not a mayor's job, right? That's that's a job for independent uh, boards. I but want to come. Think, I, just the main thing I wanted to kind of drop on that is that, as it's as you can tell from the way we're speaking, co-governance is not this issue. Like that is completely independent philosophical issue that we need to talk about in a separate, soon to to be released episode. Um, but it's completely independent. So like there are good and bad things about different forms of co-governance. We already have co-governance by many definitions all across New Zealand in different formats at different levels of power and different levels of institution. Um, some of them work well, some of them don't. And like, that's an interesting thing to 
pick apart, but it's 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 only tangentially related to three waters. Like it's it's an institutional model. It's not um, it's not entangled with three waters. I think there's a reason the rights are made it about that though, and it's because the at the end of the day, clean water is a very popular thing. Yeah. So you know, I think you're right, Philip. It's those issues are being conflated. Um, it's it's telling that national started put and act started pushing uh co-governance as issue incredibly hard only once they saw that um that coalition of people against three waters was starting to dissolve so they're looking for something new to to get people behind um and to pull the racists into it um and i i think as well they're going to try and make a culture war out of it um and, and try and push in that direction which is disgusting um but as you said we'll um try and do a, a larger format uh, episode for that and leave leave three waters there I think unless there are any final points I just think I think this is probably a positive inflection point so two months ago I think it was Labour had kind of shot themselves in the foot by presenting three waters the way that they did they fully allowed that coalition to build in a way that they didn't have to last year um, there was predictable pushback from all the areas you'd imagine um, whereas now and I want to I don't know I'll cross my fingers but in two months I think if you took a poll on three waters um, positions would have changed. So we had pretty wide pushback last year. Every poll was looking pretty negative about it. Um, but I think now it looks more clearly about the material issues than it was initially. It was kind of, it looked kind of pie in the sky and allowed, yeah, all these kind of three to seven kind of different demographics of people to hate it. Um, at least a couple of those have been peeled off now. So um, the way in which it would be centralized has been clarified, like the power over it makes more sense. Um, it feels less like a like a theft. That, that um, act is trying to run the theft line harder now, which is smart because they're going to pull National's position on it. But it's less of a theft than it was. I mean, we already have council controlled organisations, right, with all these kind of awkward at arm's reach, uh, arm's length control that is already a real mess. Like if you accept that as uh, National and Act basically do, they love a lot of that stuff, right? It's all corporatized and financialized. Um, if you accept that, there's no reason not to support pre-waters really. Um, so it's just, yeah, I think it's going to untangle some of those arguments and probably turn some more supporters towards it. Fantastic. All right. I think we're just about coming up to time. It was nice to kind of have two major issues to focus on rather than trying to cover 10 different things. Yeah, we're minimalists now. And were, were there any other things that either of you wanted to, to give a shout out to um, before we, we close up for the day? No, I mean, I was going to say, based on what Philip was saying, is that I think um, Labour's timed things quite smartly. You know, they're driving through some big reforms, but quite a while away before the election, so people can see the, the impacts of it, I think, in a positive sense. You know, I think they'll be able to hopefully see the positive impacts of fair pay agreements by the time the election rolls around, um, of the healthcare reforms as well, potentially, though, um, you know, the healthcare system is under incredible strain. Um, and also three waters, you know, nothing's going to radically change. Um, you know, like, so I think, like, they're, they're kind of smart and savvy to do that. And, I, and then, of course, like that alongside, like, Christopher Luxon's um, really, you know, excellent media performance um, in the last few weeks. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. That helps, right? So that's leaving, and, uh, yeah. that's leaving huge openings where, like, if it, was, if it was someone that was a smoother operator, journalists would be like, oh, he's so, he's so smart and savvy to be opposing Three Waters. But now that hopefully the sheen's come off, people 
will continue to be like, so how will you fix the clean water issue? Like that's he, you have to throw the ball back. He's no John Key, like he, which we which we thought initially, and then there was a strange kind of like honeymoon phase. But you know, we come back to around to the fact that he's just no John Key. Um, and so yeah, no good luck to him. I I I I was feeling pretty down about the fact that <laughs> the polls and stuff, but now I, I I think it's a fair fight. I think you know next election. So yeah, that's cool. On that note, um, that's been another week of 1200 Current Events. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Thank you to my co-hosts, uh, Justine and Philip. We'll be potentially back uh, midweek uh, with some more content if we can get some experts together for it. Otherwise, we'll catch you again next Sunday uh, for our, our Current Events episode. If you enjoyed it, uh, click five stars uh, and give us a review. Uh, Knock the Philip is the best a review off the top of the charts. Um, he's yes, becoming inc- it, <laughs> increasingly awkward about it. <laughs> uh, share it with your friends. Give us a, a yell on Twitter. Um, and yeah, get involved in our community. Let us know what you want, to, want us to be talking about. Uh, independent uh, community-led analysis is really important, I think. Tell me what you think of my terminal sarcasm. You know, come on. Yeah, get, get in our mentions. All right. Thanks so much again for listening. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines Keeping your glass half full You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism